Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, we've seen this passage several times, but we're going to ground ourselves in this idea. The revelation of whom? Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. By the way, reminder again, In our final week, we're going to be having a message on this testimony of Jesus Christ. What is it? But here he says he's on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, and he testifies to all the things that he saw. Then he gives this blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. Why? For the time is near. And my question is, the time for what? For Jesus' coming. Look at the other end of the book, Revelation chapter 22. Over and over, we see this same thing. We'll look at verse 7. The promise from the mouth of Jesus himself. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 7. Behold, I am what? Coming how? Quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So remember that blessing at the very beginning, blessed he who keeps these books, for the time is near. Well, the time is Jesus' return. Skip down to verse 12. We see it again. And behold, I am what? Coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And finally, the last two verses of this great book, the last two verses of the Bible itself. The Bible closes with this idea. Verse 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The Bible literally signs off the very last page, the very last words of Scripture Leave us in this hope, this guarantee of the soon coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll turn to your study guide, I want to point out something. Our very first fill in the blank there. In a previous meeting, which I believe is just way back at night number two, believe it or not, where our message was, watch out the signs of Christ's coming, In a previous meeting, we studied what, and the word you're looking for here is, signs to watch for just before Christ's return. We noted that those signs are all around us. The very things that Jesus said to watch for, sure enough, they're happening. What signs to watch for just before Christ's return? In this study, by the way, this sentence has a typo, and you'll spot it here in just a second. In this study, we'll, we'll, we'll examine the actual, not the actually, <laughs> the actual second coming itself to discover the, the word we're looking for here is manner, M-A-N-N-E-R, the manner of Christ's return. The first time we looked at the coming of Jesus, we looked at the signs that would tell us when it was coming soon. Now we're going to look at the event itself to see what the Bible tells us that event will be like. And I promise you, it might be, look a little different than what you might have heard in popular Christianity or in popular culture today. 
Okay? But Jesus is coming soon. The signs are all around us. And what will it look like when he does? And furthermore, what preparation can we make for that great day? That's the burden of our study tonight, the manner of Christ's second coming. But before we study any farther, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who created us at all. You didn't have to do that, but you did. And Lord, you certainly didn't have to send your Son to die and give us the hope of eternal life once again. For both of those things, your great work of creation and your great work of redemption, we thank you and we owe ourselves to you twice over. And now, Lord, as we look to your soon promised second coming, help us to understand not only the signs to look for when it is near, but help us to understand what it will look like, what it will be like when you actually arrive. Help us to be watching for the right thing so that when we see you come, we won't miss it at all. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ in all his glory. Let's go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And before we study the second coming of Christ, it would probably be well for us to study the first coming of Christ and see how, what was the manner of his first coming. The manner of his first coming. Now again, there were plenty of prophecies in the Old Testament that foretold the timing and the signs of his first coming. But what would it actually look like when Christ came? Did Christ come the first time with all the glory of heaven and all the angels and with power and an earthquake and a mighty lightning? No. It was actually a little bit just of a blip on the radar screen, if you will. It was just kind of a a very low-key event. You recall, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. And in what kind of building? A manger. Not even in a hotel, not even in a motel, not even in an inn. There was no room in the inn. He was out in the, the barn, literally. Is that what it's going to be like at his second coming? Well, let's study his first coming first to make sure we understand that. Isaiah chapter 53, looking forward to the manner of Christ's first coming, what it would be like when he came the first time. Verse 2 speaks of Jesus' birth and life among humanity, his first coming. It says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender, what? Plant, as a root out of dry ground. Now that does not sound lovely. If I brought my wife a plant and I brought her a stick out of dry ground, she would not say, oh, that's beautiful. She would say, that's a stick out of dry ground, right? This is not painting a picture of loveliness and beauty and glory and splendor. In fact, it goes on to say specifically, he has no form or comeliness. Some versions would talk about beauty or majesty. Okay, He has no form or comeliness, He has, according to the New International Version, the same version says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Here it says in the New King James, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is how much beauty? No beauty. That we should desire him. So when Jesus came the first time, he didn't walk around and people just said, stop, just look. Oh, that must be the Son of God. Just look at him. 
He's just all beautiful and glorious and splendorous and shiny and radiant and ah. He didn't walk around like that. He just looked like a normal guy. He could have, right? He could have flexed all the glory of heaven, but that wasn't his mission. When he came the first time, it was not as a conquering king, but as a suffering savior, right? Notice this in John chapter, I believe it is John chapter 1. Of course, John was an eyewitness to the person of Jesus Christ, to his incarnation, and notice what he records about his first coming. John chapter 1, in verse 10. Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verse 10. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not, what? Know him. There were plenty of people, apparently, in the world at the same time that Jesus was in the world, perhaps even right next to Jesus, who didn't notice that he was Jesus. You think about his birth when he was taken to the, to the priests to be named and circumcised on the eighth day, as was the custom. The priests were holding the Messiah in their hand. They were like, all right, next, next. You know, Anna and Simeon come running up. Oh, we've been waiting to see this child, but they didn't spot him on external beauty. They had been studying their scripture, and the Holy Ghost pointed him out, but just looking at him, he just looked like a normal kid. And even, which is fascinating to me here, even whenever he was presented, you would see it later on in, in the Gospel of John there, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, it records that he twice had to point out, Behold, the Lamb of God. And it says, and then the next day he said it again, Behold, the Lamb of God. Apparently, he could, if he didn't want to be recognized, he could do something like this, just kind of, duck behind somebody people like where i don't i don't see a messiah i don't see a king i don't see splendor i don't he just blended in so it's very easy you could have missed as a great many people did the first coming of jesus will it be the same way with the second coming there's a theory out there that a great many people will miss the second coming that it's going to happen in secret that you won't know about it till after it happened? Is this the picture the Bible paints of his second coming? Absolutely not. Matthew chapter 25, let's see what Jesus himself says about his own second coming. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. Notice what it says here. When the Son of Man, and of course that's Jesus' favorite name for himself, when the Son of Man comes in what? His glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So he's coming all in his glory, not hidden with humanity, you know, but he's going to be outshining, splendorous, glorious. He's going to be on a throne and all his angels are going to be with him. First time he was born in a manger, with donkeys and cows. (laughs) This time, all the hosts of heaven are coming with him. It's a big difference. Matthew chapter 16. Notice what's still in the Gospel of Matthew. Just go back a few pages. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 
Verse 27, the same idea is repeated. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Notice again, He's not coming to do a work of judgment. He's coming to execute the judgment and dole out the rewards. He's right now the judge in heaven in the most holy place, but when He steps out and He lays aside those priestly robes, He takes on a kingly demeanor, and when He comes again, it's not as a humble sacrifice, it's not as a judge, but it's as a king coming back to claim what is His. And apparently you won't miss it. You won't miss it. Christ's return will be seen and heard all around the world. Revelation again, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, this time verse 7, another one of these, behold, he is coming statements. Revelation 1 and verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds. You know, this is interesting. The book of Revelation is a book of symbolic language. Jesus referred to himself as coming with angels. But here it says he's coming with clouds. Apparently in Bible prophecy, clouds represent clouds of angels. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And what does this text say? And how many eyes? Every eye will what? Are there going to be some people who are like, oh, I heard that Jesus, the rapture occurred and I missed? No. Every eye will see him. By the way, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. By the way, just an added text for you here. Leave your finger in Revelation chapter 1 and go back to Matthew chapter 23. Notice it said, even those who pierced him. Did Jesus make a promise to those people who had killed him that they would see him come the second time? Yes, indeed. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23. Again, verse 37, as Jesus leaves the temple for the very last time on earth, notice what what refrain, what what is spoken by Jesus, starting with verse 37 of Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But what was wrong? You were not willing. See, your house is left to you in what condition? Desolate, void, empty, meaningless. Then he says, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The very people who rejected Christ, he promised, you're going to see me again, but it's not going to be in the temple, and it's not going to be in this way, but you will see me again. And in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, where we left our finger there, it says, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. This will affect every tribe, every eye, every group of people. So we go back to Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus explains the last day events leading up to his second coming. 
is where we found most of those signs of his coming, if you recall. And in the same chapter, he recounts or he tells what his second coming, the manner of his second coming will be like. So we're in Matthew chapter 24. Here Jesus is talking about his own return. And look what he says in verses 26 and 27. Well, in fact, let's back up to 23. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Now, what is he saying? He is going to come again, and you'll be able to look up and say, behold, there is our God, but he means on the earth, right? Like, hey, he's right here. You've got to come over from there to come here to see him. Or, hey, I've heard that he's way over there. We've got to go there from here to see him. He says, if you hear that I'm over in Australia or South America or China or in Canada, don't believe it. Now, I believe that every eye in those places will see him, but he will not be at that place. He's not going to be on the earth, right? Look what he says in verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Apparently, there's even uh, this idea that there might even be a fake second coming that Satan might try to do. But he says, if he shows up at a place on the earth, you know that's not me. That's a false Christ. Then he explains on, verse 26, Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or, look at the spiritualism here. Look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Then he adds, For as the lightning, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's like the lightning flashes in the east, go all the way across the sky, and every eye sees it, that's how the coming of the Son of Man will be. It's not going to be some remote desert location or some secret inner room or some secret... No, 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 no. He's like, you'll be able to look up, and every eye is going to see it. Christ's return will be seen and heard by everyone. Look at this, Acts chapter 1. To underline this idea that it will be a visible event that every eye will be able to see, This is a fascinating story. Acts chapter 1, Jesus has accomplished his mission on the earth. He has not only died the death we deserve, now he's raised to new life. He has spent 40 days with his disciples, about to send them out on their ministry, and now it's time for him to return to heaven to go into his heavenly ministry as priest. And it says in verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched... He was what? Taken up. Now, now, this sounds like a really simple question, but in this instance, is Jesus coming down or is he going up? This is him going up. Okay. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, have you ever tried that? You watch something like an airplane or something like that and see how far you can watch it go? And your eye starts to strain. At first, it's easy, and it's like, and you can blink, and you've lost it. All of a sudden, you strain and strain and strain. Here, the disciples are watching Jesus, who starts right there with them, and he lifts up. But then the clouds are taking him; he can't really see, and he's straining up to look. And while they're looking up, two men stood by them in white apparel. 
who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? And of course, their answer would be, well, we're trying to keep our eye on Jesus as long as possible, right? We want to watch Jesus, right? But look at the promise that they give. This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in what? Like manner, as you saw him go up into heaven. Now, are you following that? First of all, it's the same Jesus. The same Jesus who left is the same one who's coming back. When he says, behold, I am coming soon, he's not sending a representative, he's not coming by proxy, he's not going to send an angel to come fetch you, and then he said, I'm coming myself. The same Jesus, and notice it's not just the same Jesus who went up, but the same way he went up, he will come back down. In like manner. So you notice as Jesus rises up off the earth and every eye could see him, right? said the same Jesus is going to do the reciprocal, just come right back down. Same way. So if you hear a rumor that I heard that Jesus had already come, no, you haven't. Or you might have heard it, but it's not true, right? The truth is, every eye will see him. The same Jesus who went up, the same way he's going to come back down. In fact, 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul underscores this. Chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Just in case you think, yeah, but it might be visible. What if I have my eyes closed? Trust me. (laughs) You won't miss it then either. Notice what the the Apostle Paul writes here. For the Lord, what's that next word? Himself will descend from heaven with a what? Shout. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. Notice those are not visual references. Those are audible references, right? A shout, a voice, and a trumpet. When Jesus comes back, he's not going to be like, shh, be quiet. No. He wants every eye to see and every ear to what? Hear. He's coming back with a shout with a voice of an archangel and with a trumpet of God. And just in case that didn't get your attention, just like the lightning flashes from the east to the west, and the shout of God, the voice of the archangel actually wakes the dead. So if looking up doesn't get your attention, <laughs> looking around certainly will. Amen? Watch this. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, pause right there. Does it say that all the dead will be resurrected at Jesus' second coming? No. The dead whom? In Christ. Those who have died in the faith, those who have looked forward to his coming but have been stopped short of seeing it because of death, Christ says, I'm going to wake you up so you can see it. It's a powerful thought. You think, man, I'm going to miss the second coming because I'm not going to live quite to it. Don't worry, the Lord's got a plan for that. He's going to wake you up so you can see it happen too. The dead in Christ will rise first, according to Scripture. Then we who are alive and remain, so not everyone is going to be dead at the second coming. There's some people going to live to the second coming. Praise the Lord. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? 
in the air. So is Jesus going to come back and land on this earth and stand on a mountain and say, everyone come to me? No. He's going to come back to the earth, but the dead in Christ will rise first, and apparently we're going to be gathered up to him where? In the air. So if you hear rumor on CNN, breaking news, Jesus has come and he's out it. No, he hasn't. The Lord himself, you will see him, you will hear him, and if you're in him, you'll be caught up to be with him. It's a powerful thought. When Jesus says he's coming again, it's not something you're going to miss. It's not something that like, oh, did something happen over the weekend? I didn't hear about it. You won't miss the second coming. Now, let's dive a little bit more. What happens when we are caught up in the air with Christ? What happens to us? Still at this second coming, what actually occurs when Jesus returns to those who died in the faith or lived in the faith to see him come? go to 1 Corinthians. Back to the left, just a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So a mystery is a deep thing. It's a difficult thing. But he said, I'm going to explain it to you now. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all do what? Sleep. Over and over, you'll notice this. In fact, we're going to, have a, we're going to highlight this in a, in a message coming up next week. But over and over, the Bible talks about death as a what? Sleep. So here he's referring to death, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed. So something about us will change at the second coming. Right? So everyone who's in Christ will be, whether you're raised from the dead or whether you're translated, that means go from this earth to the next without having to taste death first, whether you're, everyone who's caught up to meet the Lord will all be, according to this passage, what? Changed. Changed. Okay? Let's continue. How long will it take? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's instantaneous. It's just blink and it's over. Maybe that was too fast. Maybe it was too slow. I don't know. However long a moment is, I'm not exactly sure how long it takes your eye to twinkle, but in that amount of time, we're going to change. Now, What does that mean? Change into what? Let's keep reading. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, remember that's a reference to the second coming because the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel, with a shout, with the trump of God, right? At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. Now their body, of course, has seen corruption, right? Their physical body has decayed, but now they're going to be raised. They have, still have that same, like it will be like a, a, a zombie type of thing where they're still barely. No, 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 no. Incorruptible. It's going to be full of life and health and vigor and the full stamina of life. They're going to wake up with brand new bodies. Incorruptible. Goes on to say, for the dead, uh, I'm sorry, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And then it says, and we, that is we who are still alive, shall also be what? Change. It says it again. We will be changed. 
Now the change that the dead get is they get a new body, right? Now pause for just a second there. I want a new body too. (laughs) Some of you are like, man, I wish I was dead so I'd get a new body. No, apparently all of us, right, are going to be changed. Now I'm not particularly old yet, but I could already trade in some of my parts for improved models, amen, right? I could use a new set of knees. I could use a new back. I wouldn't mind it, you know. I could use a new body. And apparently the dead get new bodies because theirs is decayed into the earth, right? And apparently all of us will be changed when the Lord comes. That's a great, great promise. Notice here. For this corruption must put on what? Incorruption. And this mortal, that is susceptible to death, must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has been put on, has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And I love how verse 55 even takes scripture and taunts death at this point. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Because Christ comes and the decay the the ruin the end of all humanity without christ which is just back to dust says now i'm going to raise you up incorruptible new bodies for everyone great promise romans chapter 8 backing up even further to the left romans chapter 8 look we find in verse 11 the same promise again Different words, but I want to make it clear that what it is that changes when Jesus comes. What we get is a new body. A new body. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal, what? Bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So apparently when Jesus comes again, what's the new thing that we get? A new body. We get physically rebuilt, made whole, incorruptible. Notice the same passage. Skip down to verse 23 now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for, eagerly waiting for the adoption, which he calls the redemption of our what? Body. Over and over, Scripture affirms that when Jesus Christ comes again, we are going to be changed, and that change that he talks about is the reception of a new body. We get physically made whole and incorruptible. Look at one more passage to verify this. Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, chapter 3, starting with verse 20. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. I hope you note I'm doing my best to slow down and give everyone a time to see them in their own Bibles. You don't have to say thank you. Your silence is enough. That's fine. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in where? Heaven. So now he's talking about heaven, where apparently our names are already on the books there, but our 
lives are being lived down here, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, from which, speaking of heaven, we also eagerly wait for whom? The Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and notice what he's going to do when he, reco- he comes again. Who will transform our lowly, what? Body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue, uh, even to subdue all things to himself. So the same Christ who went up in a glorious body, when we go up to be with him, will give us a correspondingly glorious, healthful, incorruptible body. But repeatedly, the New Testament affirms that when Jesus comes again, those who are in Christ will be changed, but I want to underline what that change is. We get a new body. Now that's, that's a beautiful promise, but I want to be clear to underline what it's not going to change. We receive a new body, but we don't receive a new character. Now let's think about this a little bit. Go to 1 John. Way over there close to the book of Revelation, the same author as the book of Revelation. but 1 John speaks about the second coming in this way. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And again, just like Paul said, our citizenship is in heaven, but we wait for Christ to come and receive us to heaven, right? So we're on paper in heaven now, but in person when Jesus comes again, right? Notice that same construction in the writing of John. In 1 John chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 2. Beloved, when are we children of God? Now. Beloved, now we are, present tense, children of God. But then he goes on, and, that is beyond that, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Do you see a process here? Now we are accounted on paper as children of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. Now think about this, Christian. Apparently, Christ wants to take you from that moment you sign up to be his and your name is on the ledger of heaven, but he doesn't just leave you there. He continues to work with you and grow you into a new person even before he comes, yes? I want to make sure we see that process language. Both Paul and John affirm that our citizenship is in heaven. Now we are children of God, but he's not done with us once we sign up. He says, now it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But, he says, we do know this. Continuing the passage, but we know that when he is revealed... And that's a reference to what event? The second coming. That we shall be, how? Like him. And how do we know that? For we shall see him as he is. Now, I want you to notice this clearly. It does not say, 
For when he is revealed, we shall be made like him. Now when he's revealed, when he comes again, when he, that last trump sounds, the dead in Christ will rise first and we'll all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of eye, we get new bodies. But we do not get a new character. Think about that. Apparently now we're the children of God, and when he comes again, if he continues to do his work in him, we will be like him. We will be like him. And notice what he says here. How does he conclude this? What do we do with this? Verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself. To what extent? Just as he is pure. If we hope to see Christ, we're going to see him as he is. Now, I'm going to spend a minute here talking about this seeing Jesus business. Seeing God. Of course, Jesus is God. What does it mean to see God? Let's go back to the book of Exodus and notice again, we're going to be in chapter 33, and you're going to go to verse 18. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18 is where we'll begin. Moses, who walked closely with God, was in close communication, close communion with God himself, asked a favor of God that God could only partially grant. And he explains why he can't give him all that he was asking for. Exodus chapter 33, look at verse 18. And he said, please, Show me your what? Glory. Verse 19, then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But then he continues in verse 20, but, he said, you cannot see what? My face. He said, I'll let all of my goodness, my glory, I'll get as close to you as humanly possible, but you cannot see my face. Why? Notice what it says here. For no man shall see me and what? Live. (laughs) Moses is saying, Lord, just take off the veil. Let me see every bit of you. Let me come face to face with you. Show me your glory. And God's like, Look, I can let my goodness pass before you. I can let you see as much as you can, but you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. Is God being rude to not give his request to Moses? No. He's saving his life, right? You don't know what you're asking. I'll give you as much as you can handle. I'll show you my goodness, my character. But you can't see my face, because there's a principle. For no one shall see my face and live. Now we think about, oh, that's a holy, awesome God. But think back to what 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 said. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be in what condition? Like him. How do we know that? For we shall see him as he is. Now this brings up a conundrum. 
God says, no one can see my face and do what? Live. But John says that when he is revealed, we shall be like him and will know it, for we shall see him as he is. Look again, Revelation chapter 22. Go to the end of the Bible. We see this this same promise again, which will lead us to a discussion question that will hopefully turn some thoughts in your mind a little bit. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4, the, the picture that is painted of the redeemed who will be in heaven with God. Notice what it says, verse 4. They shall what? See his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Now we talked about that the other night. The name of God, remember God proclaimed his name? It's his character. And apparently these people will have his character be theirs right and thus they can see his face thus it makes sense that when the same author of revelation earlier in the epistle of john first john chapter three what's the when he says for we shall see him as he is if we have the hope of seeing him as he is he says in verse three therefore if we have this hope we should purify ourselves even as he is pure You know, Jesus said it the most simply of all. Go to Matthew chapter 5. I love how Jesus takes these big, huge thoughts and boils them down into the simplest, clearest language. Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in what is known as the Beatitudes. You might have these cross-stitched on your wall at home somewhere, okay? Or have a bookmark that's got flowers on it and a list of the Beatitudes. But think about how radical and crazy these really, what he's really saying here is, especially verse 8. Blessed are the what? Pure in heart, for they shall see God. Apparently, if we want to see God as he is, we need to have a corresponding character like his. Amen? Thus, we go back in our minds to 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Why do we know it? For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Have you ever thought about the idea that the second coming isn't necessarily good news to everybody? Have you ever seen that the same, the same exact event can elicit two radically different reactions? You see it in sporting events all the time. <laughs> the clock winds down to zero and depends on which team you are, what your reaction to that event is, right? Some are cheers, some are tears, <laughs> But this is much more than a game. This is much more than some ridiculous sporting event. This is the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that pivotal event will not be received by everyone with the same reaction. The Bible testifies to this clearly. One event has two reactions. Notice again in Matthew chapter 13. We're going all the way back to our early studies here. 
the parable we opened with about the wheat and the tares, if you recall that parable. We'll pick up it in verse 28. He said to them, this is the owner of the field, the sower of the seed, telling his servants, who of course are the angels, we remember that. Jesus says so later on in the same chapter. He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the what? Now, let me ask you a question. Does it say the harvest singular or does it say the harvests plural? Singular. One event. And of course, what does the harvest mean? We'll just skip over there to verse 39, where Jesus kind of explains his own parable. The enemy who sowed them is whom? The devil. The harvest is what? The end of the age, that is the second coming of Jesus, the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Remember, he's coming with all those clouds of angels with him, and his reward is with him to give each one according to his work. Here he says, going back now to verse 30 of the parable, let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So at the time of harvest, will there be both wheat and tares in the earth? Yes. So there's going to be plenty of people who live to the second coming. But what happens to those wheat? I'm sorry, not the wheat. What happens to the tares? Yeah, remember the wheat go to the barn and the tares go to the burn? There are going to be plenty of people who live to the second coming, But how many of them will live through the second coming? I don't want to be just one of those people who coincidentally happens to be alive at the return of Jesus. I want to be prepared for that. So when I see that lightning flash from east to west, when I hear that sound of the trumpet, that I can have that reaction like, hey, I'm going home instead of, hey, get me out of here. Right? The same harvest, two different reactions. We see this over and over. Matthew chapter 25, still in the book of Matthew. Jesus again talks about his second coming. We've already read verse 31, but we'll read now verses 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. Notice this. There's going to be two classes of people at one event. At the return of Jesus, there will be both tares and wheat, both goats and sheep. The wicked and the righteous. You understand this, right? And apparently not everyone is going through to the kingdom. So what makes the difference? What makes the difference? And I want to know that. That's the key, right? I should title this, The Key to Surviving the Second Coming. 
Friends, let me tell you something. Surviving the second coming has nothing to do with how much bottled water you have saved up. No matter how big of a trench you can dig or a cave you can hide in, friends, I'm telling you, the only, the only preparation for seeing Jesus is becoming like Jesus now. It's character transformation so that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Watch this now. Revelation chapter 6 paints a picture of the second coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 6. And it's from the perspective of those who are not looking forward to his appearing. And notice their reaction to the coming of Jesus. Revelation chapter 6, starting with verse 14. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the, rocks, said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and notice carefully what they're hiding from. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Friends, what are they most terrified of seeing at Christ's return? According to the face of Jesus. By the way, it's, it's such, a weird, such a weird phrasing. And from the wrath of the Lamb. Ever been, ever been around a lamb? Do they have much wrath? I mean, what, when, it, when a lamb gets angry, he's all like, eh. I mean, this is not a dragon. It's not some sort of like big beast with iron teeth, and it's not some sort of... The lamb represents Jesus Christ. And the reason he's represented by a lamb is because of its innocence, its purity. And his face, it's not talking about a sword in his hand or a sickle or a, or a flame or fire or something. What's the thing they can't stand to be around? His face. His face. And notice they ask this rhetorical question as they're running to the caves and asking for the rocks to fall in verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? From their perspective, when Jesus comes again, no one could be there. But is this the case for everyone? No. Go back to the Old Testament of Isaiah when he paints the picture, this time from the redeemed's perspective of this same event, of Jesus' second coming. Isaiah chapter 25 And verse 9, notice what the redeemed will cry out. Instead of hide us and fall on us rocks, kill us, we'd rather die than be in the presence of this lamb. Notice what they say in Isaiah 25, verse 9. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will, do they say kill us? No. 
He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. The same event has two opposite reactions. Some are saying, we can't stand to look at His face, and the others are saying exactly opposite. They say, behold, as in, look, there He is. The other ones are saying, look, there He is, and they're running away. They're saying, look, there He is, and they're running to Him. So what makes the difference? Let's go down here to the only true preparation. Our final segment in our study guide tonight. The only true preparation. When Christ returns, we, that is the redeemed, and I'm including us in there optimistically, hope every one of us makes a decision for Jesus Christ, wants to follow him, be loyal to him, keep his commandments, and do whatever he says, Lord, I'm yours wholeheartedly, unreservedly, 100%, I'm in. When Christ returns, we will each be given a glorious heavenly what? Body. However, the correspondingly glorious heavenly character required of all God's loyal subjects must be ours first. And let's fill in some blanks and help us understand. The reason for this is simple. Like, why couldn't he just give us new characters? Let's fill in our blanks. This makes only so much sense. The reason is simple. Bodies can be given. Bodies can be given. God can make a body out of dirt. That's how he made Adam, right? He made his wife out of a rib. I mean, making a body that functions, a piece of cake, not a problem. A body can be given, but character can only be grown. You can say developed, you can say earned, you can say built, whatever you want to say. I just like the alliteration of given and grown, right? But you get the picture. A body, he can make you a whole new one. Lord, I need new knees. Not a problem. New knees. Lord, my grandmother's been in the ground. No problem. I'll build her a whole new body. Cells and all. Working eyes, beautiful hair, everything. No problem. But what he can't give us, not that he won't give us, but he can't give us, is a new character. Let's think about this logically, because character can only come from growing it. Think about this. Who you are in your inmost soul, in your heart of hearts, your thought processes, your who you are is determined by the decisions that only you can make. Right? God is not going to make your decisions for you. I'm sure he'd like to. <laughs> I'm sure it'd be a temptation to just push you out of the way and start, you want to choose this. You want No, no, no. But he says, you choose whom you will serve. And by the way, he won't let Satan do it. People say, well, Satan made me do it. No, he didn't. He gave you an opportunity. He made it look real shiny. But you chose. Right? And if you notice that Decisions, if repeated often enough, become habits, do they not? 
And after a habit gets ingrained long enough, it just becomes part of your lifestyle. It just becomes second nature to you. Just what you do. And you practice that lifestyle long enough, it becomes your character. It's not just what you do, it becomes who you are. You go from, I don't just tell lies, to I am a liar. See the difference? You become that thing that you choose. Decisions form habits which establish lifestyles, which builds character. And your character determines your destiny. A body can be given, but a character is grown. And it's only done by you and your decisions. The person that you are is determined day by day, moment by moment, by the decisions that only you make. This is why you'll notice that there is an, there is a, a, an urgency that runs all the way through Scripture that has nothing to do with the second coming. Now, I believe that Jesus is coming soon. I think the time prophecies have expired. I think the signs are all around us. I, I know that he's coming soon. But I don't want to get ready for his return just because I happen to be living at the time when Jesus might show up any day. I've seen the bumper sticker. Jesus is coming. Look busy. Right? Is that what he wants? Just fake it because we just happen to be living the moment. He might show up on a Wednesday and I better be ready because I don't know what moment Jesus will... That's not genuine repentance. That's not genuine conversion. There's an urgency throughout all of the Scriptures completely separate from His second coming, though I believe it is soon. By the way, it is not just tied to when you might die. People say, that's right, the reason to get right with the Lord is because you might die at any day. Well, which is true. You look at the world around us, I mean, things fall out of the sky, get hit with trucks, diseases all over the place. I mean, I don't want to leave you on a low note, but we're all, you know, like a heartbeat away. But is that the reason to get right with Christ? Because I don't, want to, I don't want to end and just be in a bad spot with God, so I better get good right before. What are you going to find out that Christ might tarry his coming? We might be here for another 20 years, and you might live for another 20 years. You might be saying, oh, great. I've got 19 years and six months to live my life how I want, and all it's been the... But friends, if you put off a decision for Christ that you know is right now, you'll develop a character that won't want that decision even if you had the time later. Does that make sense? This is why we see all through the Bible, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That decision-making is so important. The only true preparation for seeing Jesus is to become more like Jesus right now, every day moment by moment. So let's go to our final fill in the blank. As Christians, our goal should be more than merely to someday get into heaven. We've said this phrase a lot, but I want you to see it. I want you to write it down. I want you to mull it over in your mind. As Christians, our goal should be more than merely to someday get into heaven. We should ask the Lord to fit us into the society of heaven 
even now. One of my favorite authors says, if we, if we are to go to heaven, we must have a heaven to go to heaven in. <laughs> we got to have a character that corresponds to the king of that place if we're going to see the king face to face. Does that make sense? Let me ask you a question. We've asked it every night. Please raise your hand if tonight's presentation has been clear and understandable. Praise God. Hopefully, beyond that, beyond just convincing it through the power of the Holy Spirit, can be convicting. And you go home and say, Lord, how can I be more like you? Is there anything between me that I just want to kind of hang on to as a pet sin that I just want to keep, you know? Is there anything I need to cut out and say, Lord, I want to be, I don't want to just get in, I want to fit in. I want to go from this world to the next. I don't want to just live to the second coming. I want to live through the second coming. I don't want to hide in the cave. I want to have the full beam of Christ's face shining on me and say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. If that is your prayer, will you stand with me tonight as we pray? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much Again, as we mentioned, for life at all, but even the hope of eternal life is beyond our description, beyond our level of gratitude to return. But Lord, we understand that there's going to be plenty of people who live to the second coming. They're going to see, as every eye will, your coming. They're going to hear that voice. They're going to see the dead come to life. But Lord, help us to want something more than merely getting into heaven and a new body. But Lord, help us to even now through the inworking of your Holy Spirit, to develop a character that is fit for that kingdom. Help us to be like Jesus so that when we see Jesus, we'll go from this world to the next seamlessly. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not made a decision for you or is wrestling with some level of obedience to your word that they've recently become aware of or are being convicted on through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I would ask that even now in this moment, you would give them the victory. That you would put out every distraction, every discouragement, every hindrance or obstacle to a closer walk with Jesus. And then right now, you would speak to them and they would surrender whatever it is. And say, Lord, I want to be yours 100%. Make me like Jesus. Before we pray it, pardoning and in the empowering name of Jesus Christ. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.